This episode of The Spiritually Sassy Show is brought to you by the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, where Sa began his own career in wellness as a certified health coach. IIN's Holistic Health and Nutrition School will teach you how to change lives, including your own. As a certified health coach, you'll align with your purpose, unlock your potential, and create the career of your dreams. IIN pioneered the field of health coaching with the Health Coach Training Program and created a movement to change the health and happiness of the world. At IIN, you'll not only learn about integrative nutrition, they offer a more holistic and comprehensive approach to care, including incorporating relationships, mental well-being, career, and more. Payment plans start as low as $199 a month, and as a member of our community, you'll save $2,500 off tuition if you mention Sa Di Simone at registration. Discover how to nourish, heal, and thrive in all aspects of your life and career. Sign up today at the link in the show notes and prepare to be empowered to tap into your innate wisdom and live a life you love. What's up, my loves, and welcome back to the Spiritually Sassy Show. Wow, life is really full. I hope you're okay. Listen, today's guest is Dr. Erin McKee. She's an experienced clinical psychologist, trauma expert, certified mindfulness meditation teacher, and a military veteran. Get into this episode, get your mind blown, get your heart open, get that body energized. And remember, if you love the Spiritually Sassy Show, please rate, review, subscribe, share with your friends and your community. I really appreciate your support. Love you. Mean it. Cool. So welcome to the show. It's such an honor to have you here. Like, oh my goodness, getting to know your bio and you. I'm like, excuse me? Yes, please. Can we have you on the show to introduce you to our entire spiritually sassy community? Um, Welcome to the show, my dear. Oh, thank you. It's so awesome. And I feel the same way. I'm so honored. Oh, thank you. Thank you, truly. Okay, so first question I ask every guest is, who are you right now? Yes, and I have listened to a lot of your podcasts, and that's a little bit of a tricky answer for me because I'm trying not to be a who. I'm really trying to follow the Buddhist path of not clinging to I, me, mine. So I'm I'm awakening over and over again, and I'm trying to let go of ego. Mm-hmm. I love that. There you go. Mm, I love this so much. You know, I think we under in in our sort of like habituated, indoctrinated, colonized, conditioned societal view of who we are. We are constantly looking from the outside in to discover who we are, and we forget that we are an experience. We are a delicious, passing, beautiful experience. You know that we can't. There's, there's nothing to hold on to. And the moment you think you, you're holding on to something, you've missed the plot, right? That's right. That's right. We are the awareness. We are what notices. Mm-hmm. I love that. Okay, so let's get into like this incredible wild. And thank you for being such a bodhisattva, you know, like thank you for really like living the, the you know, I know some people don't like the word holy or saintly or bodhisattva, but I I usually I use these words 
for people who I radically believe in my heart of hearts who are really like modeling a, a legacy of nonviolence, a legacy of, of, you know, genuine compassion and love. So thank you for, for being that and like living it and, 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 you know, sharing yourself with us here. So, you know, this is like, whoa, like, oh my goodness. Okay. So here's the first question. Um, you've done a lot of work with veterans yeah. and even served as the only clinical psychologist for a ship of 5,000 active duty sailors. Yes. Explain that. Like, <laughs> even that, I'm like, excuse me, thank you for like going to the depth of the depth and bringing light and love and kindness and patience and safety to the furthest corners of the world. I love that you see it that way. You know, sometimes when you've been an active duty person, people think you're a warmonger. And I, I really felt like I was a pacifist until I started working with veterans and I realized that somebody has to be available for them. Mm. And so I did all my training. I went to school for psychology in San Francisco, which was amazing. Mm -hmm. And I started working with veterans and I just got hooked because they're such incredibly earthy people and so dedicated. I mean, the, this is the volunteer military. Now I had some... Uh, Korean War and some World War II, like at one mm -hmm. 91-year-old. Mm -hmm. So they had been drafted mm -hmm. and plenty of Vietnam, of course, who, many of whom were drafted, which was a huge trauma. Mm -hmm. But the more recent, you know, this 20 years of war we were in in Iraq and Afghanistan, all of those mm -hmm. were volunteer. And there's, right, and that's 1% of the U.S. population that volunteers to be in the military. So I, right? So I did all my training. I did my internship and postdoc in New Orleans at the VA there. And when I got my license and finished my postdoc, I thought, why not me? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I wanted to get some loan repayment. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I owed a lot of money. That's right. And, right. And so I was, after five months, I was already in Lejeune. First, I was in um, the Naval Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, in D.C., mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then I was in Lejeune, North Carolina, getting ready to go to Afghanistan. And then I was in Afghanistan for seven months, boots on the ground. And I thought I understood. I know, right? I thought I understood because I'd mm -hmm. worked for the VA and I'd worked with lots of veterans. I had no idea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing like being deployed. And mm -hmm. talk about hurry up and wait. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in many ways, it was very normal. I, I was in a clinic. I, mm -hmm. It was outpatient. I saw people all day. Mm-hmm. So. so there's two two things. Let's talk about the 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 time that you were in Afghanistan, and then let's talk about the time that you were in the ship. Like, because just the fact that you did that again, like, excuse my language, but holy fucking shit! Like, thank mm -hmm. you for bringing us this experience. Like, I have never in my life talked to anyone who's walked this path. Okay. You know, so thank you. Like, oh. so, you know, give me as much, paint us as much of a picture as you can. Like you were in an office seeing patients all day in Afghanistan and then paint us a picture of what it's like to like live in a ship and kind and see people there. And, and, you know, as much detail as you can, like the kinds of, of challenges that people are experiencing and, um, yeah, you know, walk us into your world. Okay. So I was in the Navy and I deployed to Afghanistan with the Marines because the Marines do not have their own medical. Mm. 
So both the Marines and the Navy are under the Department of the Navy, but do never don't ever call a Marine in the navies like a Marine part of the Navy because okay. they will say we are mm-hmm. separate, and they are America's nine one one. So they are always doing the most difficult thing. And mm-hmm. so it was an incredible honor to deploy with them. And they are extremely strict. And we think of Marines as being kind of, you know, unifaceted, like they're all jarheads. And there are some that are, you know, huge and not overly intellectual, but many of them are actually brilliant. And there's a whole group of people who are like, the reason that they're in the Marines is because they're so smart and they're part of making sure that everything runs smoothly and doing a lot of secret squirrel stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But I was in an outpatient clinic and sometimes I was in the concussion restoration care center. So Afghanistan, where we were, which is the southwest corner of it, is dirt. It's all dirt. Mm-hmm. Parts of Afghanistan are gorgeous, used to be, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. Afghanistan is a country that has been in the middle of war for such a long time because they're in between Russia and Pakistan. So they're a route. And so Russia invaded in the 70s and then 9-11 happened and we Mm -hmm. came in. And Mm -hmm. so everything was gray and it was dirt. Even the birds were gray and there was no vegetation. And that was really hard to handle. I love nature. Mm -hmm. I love green. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so it felt a little bit like being in a desert prison. We all knew that we were in prison. Mm-hmm. We didn't know how for, for how long or what we'd done. And mm-hmm. you're in everywhere you go, you have to leave to go to the bathroom. You have to leave to go and eat. And you have to be mm-hmm. in full uniform at all times. Wow. And everything is regulated. Mm-hmm. So I got to work with a lot of wonderful young people, and they had complex issues. Many of them were really too ill, too mentally ill to deploy. Mm -hmm. So part of my job was to identify that and to get them to go home without having them have a dishonorable discharge because a dishonorable discharge works like a felony. (gasps) It ruins your life. But you have to be, to be a member of the active duty military, you have to be able to be in an operational setting. So an aircraft carrier is an operational setting. Deployment Mm -hmm. is an operational setting, right? Mm -hmm. So people with severe OCD, eating disorder, they can't mm-hmm. be mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. not wor- worldwide assignable. And many of the young people, right? Because at 18, many people enlist, mm-hmm. they have their first manic episode and they didn't know they were bipolar or their mm-hmm. first psychotic break. Mm-hmm. Actually, I saw more of that on the aircraft carrier because people are under such duress there because you're trapped. So mm-hmm. at least in Afghanistan, you can see the sky, that you can touch the ground. But on the aircraft carrier, everything is just blue around you, right? And I actually found that much more stressful than being in a war zone, even though most of the time we were not, we weren't Mm -hmm. deployed. Mm -hmm. We were in a period where we went to the yards and we would go on these underways. But many Mm. of the kids were trapped on this aircraft carrier for up to six years and they were miserable. And it was a nuclear aircraft carrier, which Mm -hmm. means that they had... I think three nuclear reactors that had to be babied by these folks were called nukes and it takes three years to create them. And they're given a huge bonus, like a hundred thousand dollar bonus mm-hmm. and then create meaning they have to go to power school. They have to go to the pipeline and then they finally get to their ship. And most mm-hmm. of them spend all their time in the bowels of the aircraft carrier, not seeing the sun doing four hour shifts, only sleeping for four hours. And so oh many God. of them are suicidal, like yeah. actively. Mm-hmm. So 
that was really challenging to try mm-hmm. to take care of these people. But also you work for the Navy. The client is the Navy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, wow. Mm. Yes. And do you think that it, of course, you're familiar with the ACE study. Do you think, yes. like, was that part of your questionnaire, like, as you're working with the patients, like, getting to know the fact that they've had a high ACE score and they still were able to, like, function and get into the Navy and do all this stuff? Isn't it interesting how, like, sometimes our, our, our like, you know, trauma response makes us, like, very, um, you know, coherent in like a very specific materialistic way that we're able to perform and do and pass the test and do the thing. And then we, we then crumble, right? I am, you know, I've, I've been in a, in a crumble season since this, uh, since the last two years of just sick on the clock. And then, you know, I've had like five panic attacks in the course of a month and a half. Um, of course my mom died, you know, um, so it was like leading up to her death and our, our deep connection. Uh, but I've, I've just noticed how much of the un, of the unprocessed, which I'm actively processing through my work, through my teaching, but so much of the things, the ACE score that I have, that I haven't, you know, even named or had the courage to turn to or whatnot. And that's because I'm in the space, right? Imagine those kids who are not in the space, who have no language. So you're giving them language to this, to their ACE score, I imagine, right? Yes. And you're right. We have it as part of our questionnaire, intake questionnaire, but it is after working with veterans, which was such a gift to me, I understood that there is a backdoor draft. It people of color who come from very, or, you know, or poor whites who come from really abusive homes, they escape into the military. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. there are abusers in the military, many, mm-hmm. many, many. So mm-hmm. the thing that surprised me the most was the high rate of military sexual trauma and how sailors were abusing sailors, Marines were abusing Marines. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so you're trapped on a ship or you're trapped in Afghanistan with your abuser. Mm-hmm. And Holy so, shit. And yes. And most of them were, of course, people who had childhood sexual trauma mm-hmm. and some extremely severe. Mm-hmm. So that I didn't account for, even though in working with veterans, I knew about military sexual trauma. Mm-hmm. I didn't expect to be with a group of people who were actively in that mm-hmm. and to have to figure out how to either get them out or get them to recovery, you know, get them to a, an inpatient program or mm-hmm. get them to a different place. So mm-hmm. that was intense, it, but so meaningful. Oh my God. I can, I have, I say, I, I, you know, normally colloquially, colloquially we say, I can only imagine, but like, I can't imagine, right. you know, what it's like to be trapped in a ship with the abuser, with the, you know, it, it just, it's so mind blowing. Like you need to like write a book, write a movie, a series. I hope you're thinking about all these things, doctor, because we need it. We need it. It's, but it's also so hard to hear. It's so hard to hear. I can notice myself like, wow, this is really, um, activating and like to a degree to my sensitive nervous system. Cause I'm in deep grief right now. Um, but I'm having this conversation on the podcast because it's with the people that I know are, are life affirming with the people that I know are the ones who are tickling the 
my will to live and my will to keep teaching and sharing and educating and being of service. Um, so, you know, keep, keep going, but I'm just naming how it really is like hard to hear. And I have a question. We talk a lot about in the podcast about a, about punitive justice versus restorative justice. And what's your approach in the ship and as a clinician and as the refuge for people, like how, what's your direction in that? Such a good question. So, you know, burnout manifests in different ways in different people. And Mm -hmm. the two psychologists who'd been on the ship before me became so jaded that they would tell their clients, the kids, you're faking it, get the fuck out of my office. And this was a a huge problem. And so when I came there, I was told, you're going to have to redo all the relationships that have been broken by the last two psychologists on this ship. And it is a very big deal because as a woman and as someone who had not been in very long, I was only in for five years. So, Mm -hmm. you know, three and a half at this point, people who were higher ranking but knew nothing about psychology thought I was ridiculous and invalid and Mm -hmm. did not want to listen to me. Luckily, the captain of the ship and aircraft carriers are the only ships that are run by pilots. So this is a like top gun era pilot. Wow. And he was a lovely man. And even though he and I didn't see eye to eye politically, he was a Catholic and believed in love. Right. Mm -hmm. I've heard you talk on your former Mm -hmm. podcast about Catholicism and how it can be very punitive. So Mm -hmm. the military is absolutely punitive. Absolutely. And it is a problem. And as a psychologist, I was aware that behaviorism, you know, punishing people when they they do something that's they say is wrong works in the short run. But in the long run, it creates shame. It creates rebellion. And so when we'd have kids who'd get in trouble for drinking or alcoholism, they would have to go to these three different things. First, the XOI, then the captain's mast. And then sometimes they would have to go to a court martial. Because there are a lot of things in the military, like adultery is legal. You know, even though it's legal in Washington to smoke pot, it's not federally legal. So if you do that, you get kicked out. So I really worked with my captain to keep these kids in the military and let them have honorable discharges when actually the the rule was to get them dishonorably discharged for not being able to handle things. Oh, shit. So I just thought that was completely wrong. Mm -hmm. And the psychologist who came after me dismantled all that and became very punitive. He enjoyed having that power. And, you know, in in mental health, Mm -hmm. there's always the the danger of Mm -hmm. becoming grandiose and feeling Mm -hmm. very powerful and not not joining with your clients, not seeing them as equals, but Mm -hmm. liking Mm -hmm. to have power over them, Mm -hmm. especially in military psychology. Oh my God. Wow. So, so you asked me that. It was a fight mm-hmm. every moment, especially in Afghanistan, because the Marines, they're lovely. I love the Marine Corps because they they would die for you, literally. Mm-hmm. But they are so behaviorist. They scream mm-hmm. at their young Marines. And I just cringed, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, like you, I was really focused on love, boundary love, right? Mm-hmm. But I felt it was my job to reparent them mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. to give them the safe space where they could say anything and they would be mm-hmm. completely accepted and then mm-hmm. fight for them and for their mm-hmm. right to be mentally ill and not be kicked out mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. taken care mm-hmm. of because many of these mental illnesses, you need lifelong care. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And it's, it's, if you, if you, 
I forget the exact words, but if you send them off with the shame uh, uh, stamp on them, they will, you know, statistically take their own lives yes. and and just go into addiction and, and all the things that we've seen veterans go through. But unless there's people like you to stop the momentum of this horrific a punitive justice approach to mental illness and to into mistakes. Yes, it would it would just perpetuate a cycle of of addiction and suicide and and all this you know fucked up things that we see happening to veterans. Yeah. Um, you know what 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 are some of the the sort of key things that you educate your your patients in understanding? Uh, punitive justice versus like restorative justice. I understand you were also working an extreme, like you were the uh, the niche of the niche of the niche, like you were working, you know, <laughs> but I, I just want to sort of, you know, like, because you were working with the most sort of extreme kinds of, of people in the world. Right. And, and, and I'm, I'm speaking from an American perspective, you know, yes. living in the U S having most of my community based here, you're working with the most extreme of our community, um, and they're trained. They're you know it, they're 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 in the military. Like say no more, right? Like they're literally that. So what can you? What have you said to them that that you saw softening their heart? Because it's one thing to say the captain was a Catholic and believed in love, but you know sometimes their the Catholic love can be punitive, and the mm-hmm. Catholic love can be. Uh, violent and can be homophobic and yes. racist and transphobic and queerphobic, but it's yes. Catholic love, right? <laughs> it's painted in this, like, you know, this theology that kills, but they're saying, but Jesus said it, the prophet said it. So it's painted in this really twisted way. So I, I'm wondering, like, how did you find your way in as an extremely well studied, your references are insane, like, you are just this, like, prolific. Bodhisattva. Um, so w- what were some of the things that you kind of helped people in, in that punitive versus restorative and like, like what, wh- how did, how did you manage to get people to sort of understand that? Good question. It was not simple. And, you know, first and foremost, I would advocate for them with their superiors, their so-called superiors. Mm-hmm. I would try to protect them and stop it. Mm-hmm. Right. And secondly, I have a master's in cultural anthropology, which I did before I got my doctorate in psychology. And so I, I tried to convince them to be anthropologists. Mm. And the beauty of anthropology is we do participant observation. So you go and you live with another culture and you are not in the culture, but you are with it for significant amounts of time. And I certainly did the best when I was, you know, wearing the costume, not the uniform. And I was an anthropologist who wasn't actually in the Navy. And so I tried to help them do that. So mindfully helping them see that they could observe what was happening, but not take it personally because it wasn't about them. Mm. So teaching them about projection, right? Right. And compassionate curiosity and observing the mind and thoughts as objects of the mind and feelings as objects of the mind and the physical sensations that go with them. So I tried to also get them in their bodies. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and I and then I would bring up things like, you know, what happened to Nelson Mandela and how he survived that indefinite prison sentence mm-hmm. by having a small garden. 
mm-hmm. and you know the power of the imagination you know anything i could think of from martin luther king jr um, you know all these like you know or on sang suchi and yeah, I, mean, I may not pronounce that right but you know our lady yeah. of burma and the people who have been treated terribly but haven't lost their compassion mm-hmm. and their love and and there's this famous buddhist uh, maybe he's a tibetan buddhist i can't remember his name who mm-hmm. was captured for eight years or something. And they asked him, did you ever lose hope? And he said, only when I lost love and compassion for my captors. Right. So trying to help people see that the people were treating them cruelly, it wasn't about them and that they didn't have to take it on. And I'm glad you bring up the trans community and, mm-hmm. and the gay community, because when I was in Afghanistan, don't ask, don't tell was still happening. And so people would use it to manipulate each other, which was horrible. Like, I'm going to mm-hmm. tell people you're gay, and then you're going to be kicked out. And then, so you have to do what I say. A lot of coercion, right? Because that's what they've learned in their families, and they're young. Oh and, God. and then, when, and then that was repealed, luckily, and so you could be openly mm-hmm. gay, which was wonderful. Although, you know, in the in in the birthing with the women, we we're like no cupcaking. That was a rule. <laughs> like you couldn't be like hanging on your girlfriend. You know, you had to be mm-hmm. separate because it had to be in an environment that wasn't sexual. So that was interesting. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. it was right at the end of Obama's tenure, and he was considering allowing trans folk to be open in the military. And so Mm -hmm. we had a large group of trans and non-binary kids. And we decided to have a a processing group, a therapy group for them off of the Nimitz. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say the the name, but that's what's called the aircraft carrier. Mm -hmm. Because there were a lot of haters. A lot of people Mm -hmm. used it to mm-hmm. threaten a dishonorable discharge. And in fact, our executive officer, he decided he was going to kick them all out. Wow. And luckily, our um, family practitioner, who was very smart, she went toe-to-toe with him and she said, that is not what the regulation says you can do. And mm-hmm. so he didn't get to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love this. And what were some of the the challenges that you saw for like trans uh, people? Do you think that like, this is like really, you know, a twisted thought, but do you think like heteronormative folks were, were like engaging with the queer community? And then if the queer community kind of like named it, that that was happening, they would say, I'm going to, I'm going to tell on you. Like, did you see that happening? Oh, that's such a good point. I think you're absolutely right. I did not have evidence of that, but that makes so mm-hmm. much sense. I'm attracted to you and I'm supposed to be cishet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what does that say about me? So yeah, that's that Freudian mm-hmm. reaction formation. I will hate what I don't want to be. That's right. And so I'm going to get you in trouble. Yeah, it's such a good question. I think a lot of... I know I'm asking you questions that are like, so like, you know, for you, you can't, but give me what you can, you know, like go to the edge and then like, Hey, this is the edge, you know, like go there, but you know, keep your integrity. No, but no, I'm no. just, cause it's so interesting what you do. Like, wow. Well, and it was... It was so fraught, right? Because I had to protect these kids mm-hmm. from what they had enlisted in. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so the issue is birthing and bathrooms, right? Right. So many of our trans young adults were, were um, AFAB, you know, assigned female at birth. And, and yet they were really, they were like, well, I'm a dude, I'm a guy. Why can't I be around the guys? And, mm-hmm. and so there is that toxic masculinity in the military more than ever, right? More than most places. It's kind of known mm-hmm. for that. Mm-hmm. And so 
maybe there was this idea that people were just thinking they had to be anti-trans, thinking they had to be anti-gay as part of their false military self, right? Because what we're learning from Gen Z is that most people are on a spectrum, sexuality and gender. Most people are very fluid. And if allowed, Mm -hmm. they can have relationships with all kinds of people and be happy. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I really hope that they'll save us from ourselves. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's so incredible. Thank you for doing that work. You know, Um, what have you like learned about yourself through like this journey in the military? Well, so I come from a very liberal family that is quite privileged. And Mm -hmm. we did have an uncle who married in, who married one of my dad's sisters, who was a POW for almost seven years in Vietnam. And so what's a POW? um, Prisoner of war. Oh my God. Yes, right. He was shot down. He was in the Air Force in 1964. He was shot down over Viet Cong territory. I think it was 64. Yes. And so he was captive for almost seven years. Oh, my God. Right? I'm telling you, there's a book in you, honey, please. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. I tried to read his autobiography. I haven't gotten very far because it's so painful. It's so painful, you know. But in our town was a big sign on this painted sign that said, welcome home, Fred Flom. So in the seventies, he was an institution. And so we had that element, but when I got in, I had no idea how the military industrial complex takes care of so many poor people in the U S. Oh, (laughs) you know, not only, especially if you're lower ranking, not only do you get a bunch of services, but so does your spouse and your family. And so to be a superpower, we have to have this military mm-hmm. and freedom ain't free. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know any of that. I was mm-hmm. so detached from that. Mm-hmm. And so being in that and embodying that was painful. Mm-hmm. Right? And then being in Afghanistan, seeing how the people who are left, the ones who couldn't leave, they live in what feel like pre-biblical times. They are so deprived and depraved. Mm -hmm. So the disillusionment that every person who deploys to Afghanistan, especially, is just incredibly intense. And you come back to the U.S. and it feels surreal. Marines have described it as la-la land. And the deployment feels real and, you know, civilian life does not. So there's a lot to work out. Mm -hmm. And I felt like... I had this illusion that I was inoculated against PTSD or trauma because of my training. And my first meditation retreat, which was a Goenka Vipassana, yeah, for 10 days, mm-hmm. I was flooded with memories and, and sad. And I cried, I sobbed a lot of the time. And mm-hmm. I realized that I had repressed how traumatic it was to be in Afghanistan, especially and see what was happening to the people. And then what happened to the Marines who were trying to do who knows what? I mean, you get really lost. You lose the, you lose what you're doing there very easily. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You become desensitized. Yes. Well, but also we were supposed to be doing hearts and minds. By the time we were there, it was over, it was in 2011 and 12, right? Mm-hmm. Or was it 2010? It doesn't matter. Look at me. I've got some traumatic forgetting. Uh, but we were supposed to be, Turning Afghanistan or Leatherneck is where I was. 
um, Camp Leatherneck over to the Afghan National Police and Afghan National Army. But mm. they were so disorganized and unwell. Uh, it, it just, it was not going to work out. And you know what's happened since, mm-hmm. right? And how horribly sad that is. So, of course, I carry that with me and in my body. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so does every veteran. And they're plenty of veterans who have what we call a very rapid ops tempo and they were deployed you know within six years five times wow and some of them are corpsmen you know navy corpsmen or or army medics who were with the marines or with the army and are not trained to handle nor nor is anybody else really there there's no way to to train people for the horror and the sorrow Mm -hmm. that they will feel Mm-hmm. Thanks for saying that because that's what I've always thought. You know, I was like, I, you know, the death of my mother, I had been on the path, you know, very, very, you know, I turned my addiction towards spirituality, my addiction to that, I, you know, my tendency towards addiction with drugs and alcohol, I turned towards spirituality and it's really developed my mind, my heart, my my career, it's, it's created this entire thing because of that sort of addictive tendency, but now towards God, towards liberation, towards, you know, uh, the Buddhist path towards the Dharma. Yeah. And so it's really, and I say all this to say that like nothing prepared me for the death of my mother and like seeing her in the hospital bed, in the hospital uh, hospital bed and seeing how the nurses were so unkind, so distracted. The doctors were so mean and, and distracted and, and careless and just like, and then seeing my mom in that same bed dead. And it just like all the things that were like the, the, you know, the level, what I had to witness um, nothing could prepare me, you know, nothing, nothing. And I'm telling you, I have been a religious person and my religiosity comes from not blind faith, but a faith that's based on practice. You know, I'm only a Buddhist and I'm only a practicing Buddhist because I have the realizations that come from sitting and being and and tracking and come back into your body and come back into your body. But none of this prepared me to see my mom in a hospital, in a hospital bed. And just seeing that and, and then talking to my therapist and, and just having my, um, you know, OCD being like OCD tendencies being reactivated with the, the looping memory of her in that bed and waking up with it flashing in my mind, going to bed with it flashing and not being able to like actually close my eyes to practice meditation with eyes closed. Meditation these days have been with eyes open for a reason. You know, the thought of closing my eyes during the day feels like uh, an inflammatory choice to go down a suicidal ideation route instead of a path towards true liberation. So I say all this and I watching one, if I'm going to be simplistic about it, watching one person die in a horrific state in a really careless manner where, where, you know, I am left with this tremendous wounding. Like I am literally, I have told you that was like, I feel like the last two years I've been preparing for my mom's death and I've been getting sick and having these these psychological flare-ups and all these different things happening in my life, all preparing me to like go through the the grief border that I'm in now. 
And I'm saying all this just to create some context for my feedback to you. It's like nothing could prepare us for seeing people dying, killing someone, seeing someone dead, sexual abuse, the the tremendous toxic traits of a of of a of a system like that. So I mean it, it, it like whoa. I know. Right? I know. Mind blowing, heart blowing. And to keep love was really hard. Yes, I'm so sorry about your mom. And I I really appreciate that you explained that to me because Mm -hmm. you did try to prepare yourself. You did try to handle it and not be as affected by it. But we don't don't get out of it. Mm -hmm. We Mm -hmm. have to bear it. And Mm -hmm. we don't... We don't get over it. We just get used to it. That's right. That's right. And Lamott speaks about that in her grief poetry. And I just, I'm, I'm, it's literally giving. The only thing that's a, that is holding me is, of course, community, uh, friendship, and the the complexity and the paradoxical nature of poetry. Because when things are outlined in a very black and white way, it just, it goes out in one year and out the other. It's like anything that misses the complexity and controversial and paradoxical nature of reality, I can't, I have no tolerance for that. You know, zero. Isn't that great? I mean, in a way, yeah. grief is very cleansing, right? Because you don't have any time for bullshit. Very true. Right? Very and true. Yeah. I did my dissertation on post-traumatic growth. And it's the idea that as horrible, you know, no matter how bad a trauma is mm-hmm. or how, how many you have, you mm-hmm. can recover and you mm-hmm. can see it as a net positive ev- event because you get perspective, you understand what matters, your relationships matter more. And it sounds like that's part of what's happening to you. Mm-hmm. The process of post-traumatic growth, if you can mm-hmm. let these intrusive memories of her death and being in the hospital, if you can allow them to come, they will turn neutral. And then mm-hmm. you'll get positive things out of them. But mm-hmm. all you can do is let the process happen mm-hmm. and not mm-hmm. rush it and not avoid mm-hmm. it, right? Because we understand, I'm not saying you have PTSD, but mm-hmm. the PTSD is a disorder of avoidance. The counterintuitive mm-hmm. thing to do is to approach and to trust that you can handle it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Speak about this. Go, go off. Cause this is literally so beautiful. Like, so you are, you're essentially saying what a lot of people say in the new age community that really turns me off that they're saying, Oh my God, like, and I've said this, but I always give people like the multiple steps, right. Which you're definitely going to walk us through of like, you know, this is, thank you for trauma. Thank you, pain. Thank you, you know, all this difficulty. Uh, I've, I've become a better version of myself. And I, I can actually say this with all the other things that have happened before my mom's death. Like right now, it's still so hard to, you know, we're recording it, the podcast, January 27, 2023. So it's it's a month and two days that I haven't heard her voice, that I haven't uh, FaceTimed her and I haven't, you know, made any plans or uh, so it's, it's, um, it's, 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 it's almost unbearable the thought that there's anything good that's that can come out of this you know it's oh. really like i'm i'm in that place of agony right now and marion willinson wrote me an email mm-hmm. saying the 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 valley of agony you you walk 
it doesn't feel like it's it it ends, but it ends, you know. Um, and Mirabai Mirabai Star, uh, uh, you know, said sent me beautiful poetry. And David Kessler wants to have a call, so I'm I'm supported by all these incredible people. And also, it's almost like no words can can resurrect the my mother. And that is the the thing that is just like, whoa, that's crazy. So I'm saying all this to, to get back to the thing where for the time being, there's nothing that could be net positive about it. But also I know that in trauma work, it it really does arrive at a place where it is cleansing. We do learn. We do become stronger. We survive. We get wiser, more loving, more compassionate. So speak about this post-traumatic growth that you studied and you you educate and teach about because that is I think for the listener and I am so like happy to like receive the the download and be educated in this moment so please go at it for us and why do some people in that space why do some people after trauma go into a PTSD spiral versus those who don't like what kind of separates that such a good question and the answer is we don't know we think that it could be those who dissociate during trauma are more likely to develop PTSD. And it's back to the avoidance, right? Even though dissociation is such an adaptive coping mechanism when you're a child, for example, when you're trapped mm-hmm. and you cannot fight and you cannot flee. Mm-hmm. So I, I think dissociation is a gift, but it, one has to learn how to stop doing it and to be present. Mm-hmm. And so the beauty of mindfulness is it teaches you to do that. And in trauma-sensitive mindfulness, we often don't, we see mindfulness as almost like an exposure therapy and not everyone's ready for it. So one of the things that we can do is resourcing. And that's exactly what you're talking about is surrounding yourself with people who are loving and kind and helping you. Right. Mm -hmm. So I would tell you specifically to honor the pain and Mm -hmm. to not rush into anything. Mm-hmm. Part of what we understand about post-traumatic growth is that it has to be organic, right? And so what I was trying to say is that trauma acts like a psychological earthquake. It turns everything upside down. So the world that used to be mostly benevolent feels mostly malevolent. The world has not changed, but your perspective on it has. And to try to rush out of that would just be completely fake, right? And then you're in danger of hurting yourself more. Mm-hmm. So grief and trauma are related but separate as well. Mm-hmm. And what you're talking about is grief. Mm-hmm. And you it just has to be born, mm-hmm. right? And Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talks about these different stages, but she also said we didn't mean that they were linear and that it was something to be done right. Mm. Right. So with post-traumatic growth, these ruminative memories, these feelings about the trauma will be very negative at first. That's just mm-hmm. inevitable. But if you cannot avoid them and just allow them to wash over you, like in Buddhism, we talk about the wave. You can't stop it, but you can learn to surf. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. That in time they will turn neutral and then you can find positive things from them. But that's not the same as saying, I'm so glad it happened. Mm-hmm. Thank you, trauma. You're my friend. 
I don't say that to people. I like that idea. It's sort of like inviting Mara to tea, right? That's right. right? Yes, yes, yes. Yes. But I would never tell a client who has just had a trauma or is or is in the beginning of trauma recovery to welcome the feelings. I would just say mm-hmm. try to observe them with compassion and curiosity mm-hmm. and not push them away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and observing you talking about like a somatic awareness, right? Just like yes. tracking where they're happening in the body, yes. like dropping the stories, being with the feelings, yeah. that that train of, of work, right? Yes. And I was I did a two-year program with Jack Kornfield and Tara Brock, the mindfulness meditation teacher program. And I feel like that saved me during the pandemic. I might have really mm-hmm. gone into despair. I'm such an extrovert extrovert. I really love the relational field. And so they, they teach that, right. That Mm -hmm. you have to get out of the mind and into the body. Now the Tibetans know that the mind and the body aren't separate, right. It's Mm -hmm. just this, you know, Cartesian, how do you say it? Um, Aristotle and Plato and those guys who decided we could be ultra, ultra rational and they separate the mind from the body. So we're, we're reconnecting it. And if we can Mm -hmm. get out of the mind and into the body, that really helps. So you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. And thank you for mm-hmm. mentioning that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So for clients who are in the sort of the early stages of trauma, who something may have happened like a month ago or two months ago, and they're just either the cloud of dissociation is kind of fading away and they're really starting to have remembrance and flashbacks and the feelings are flooding them and, you know, all kinds of tendencies are showing up. Like, what are the first keys that you um, that you offer them in that process? I try to create a safe container. You know, a lot of us didn't get what we needed from our caregivers. You know, if the caregiver wasn't well, had depression or drug addiction or mm-hmm. abuse and neglect themselves, the child didn't get what they needed, right? And so that was what I was talking about with the reparenting is trying to create that safe container so that at least the therapy the therapeutic alliance is a safe place to talk about anything and everything mm-hmm. and also try to teach them the tranquilizing aspects of Buddhism, trying to teach them that that physiological reality of fight flight being the sympathetic and the deep relaxation being the parasympathetic. And they can't both be on at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I, I give them psychoeducation about how they can actually calm their system. And with veterans, And active duty people, one thing I said to them is, you are the most trainable people on the planet. You went from having no idea what to do in a war zone to being able to blindfold and take your weapon apart and put it back together, right? Mm -hmm. But you would never learn how to use your weapon in a firefight. So what I recommend is that you do this deep breathing or this diaphragmatic breathing or these different breathing techniques when you're the most calm so that you don't associate the breathing or being in your body with anxiety. Because if that's the only Mm -hmm. time you practice it, Mm -hmm. you're going to feel like breathing is anxious. And a lot of us felt that way before this was explained. Mm -hmm. Noah Levine is actually the person who taught me that. Mm -hmm. Noah Levine? Noah Levine, yeah. I don't don't know him, but I went to Mm -hmm. a little sitting that he had. Had the courage to say, I'm so anxious. Mm -hmm. When we're doing this, I feel worse. And this was 20 years ago or something. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, that's because you're noticing. Mm-hmm. I love this. And then from that process of, okay, so psychoeducation about the breath, wonderful. And then and then giving them the tools to start to track the feelings in the body. And then, and then at some point, 
have you noticed in your work with your client, I mean, with your patients and students that the memories lose emotional charge through somatic work? Can you speak about that? Yes. And so instead of doing sort of these more classic exposure therapies, which have been very, very researched and they have been shown to help people and you sit in the feelings for 45 minutes, right? Without self-soothing. That's what it's based on, right? It's that classic exposure with response prevention, right? Mm. Now, the new idea, especially for people with um, complex PTSD, is that we pendulate. So we talk about it as long as it can be tolerated, maybe a little longer, and then we take a break from it. Mm -hmm. So I integrate things that I've learned and I don't force anybody to do anything. I let it Mm -hmm. be organic and fluid. And so often if people feel safe, they'll start talking about things. And I remind them that as awful as the experiences were, they didn't kill them Mm -hmm. and the memories cannot hurt them. Mm -hmm. And so they'll say as a mantra, this is not them. Wow. It's so simple but it's also extremely complex. So Mm -hmm. see how the avoidance of the somatic experience when the memories arise, if you avoid that, you continue to be ruled by them. This belief Mm -hmm. that you can't handle it, Mm -hmm. but you can. Mm -hmm. That's part of what I try to empower them to understand about themselves is you can handle this. You've handled this. You're resilient. You've lived. Mm -hmm. You've survived. But Mm -hmm. we want you to go from surviving to thriving. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And part of that is being able to sit in it. And sometimes it's just for a minute. And then mm-hmm. the next time it's a minute and a half. Mm-hmm. So the sitting in it, it's like uh, we talk about it to sort of like activate the the memory and then bring it to the surface. And because it's in the forefront of the mind, then the feelings that are hardwired with that memory are now alive in the soma, alive in the yes. body. And then through that process, they start to to you know, be able to like turn towards it and not away from it. Yes. Yes. And sometimes, and this is not a metaphor I've used before, but I like it. Sometimes you're just in the room with it and you're looking at it across the room and it's not anywhere near you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When before you couldn't even go in the room Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then you slowly approach as it feels more comfortable, but often the body is the one that knows the trauma and then the Mm -hmm. mind interprets it. Mm -hmm. So we get back in the body and there are beautiful meditations that Tara and Jack have taught us. And now I'm doing a masterclass of Jack's that is all about these meditations to help people get in the body. Mm-hmm. And one thing that we've done recently is to connect it to the elements. So how heavy is it? Can you see through it? Mm-hmm. Is it rough or is it smooth? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, what is its shape? And that mindfulness just gets people out of their head. That's you know, right. It's not the head, but you know, the mind, it stops the mind yeah, from yeah, 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 yeah. and protecting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Do you think it's necessary to remember your trauma in order for you to heal? No. And there's a lot of evidence that when people have traumatic forgetting, that's actually okay. And it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a I had a viral video uh that I that I said something like this, and people were it was a lot of um back and forth around why and why you have to and why you don't have to. And I'm, I didn't know the language of trauma forgetting, but um, I, I believe it's, you know, the body keeps the score, right? And then what's happening right here, right now could, 
the depth of your per of your of your experience in the now shows you what is unprocessed. Yes. What are the knots from your biology that require your unknotting? You know, and it, you can only do it in the present moment. You can only do it right here, right now, with the felt sense. So right. somatic tracking and awareness, it's literally the gateway. I, I I've said this before in the podcast, but I feel like I spent a long time in my spiritual journey. Um doing everything I could to to do the the holy, the sacred, the the very spiritual way of dissociation, you know, through meditation, through mantra, through dancing, through eating this thing and dressing in this way until I discovered that it's literally through the body is the gateway into the heart. Like you can, you can't, you know, like think your way out of suffering. You can't change your perspective out of suffering. You got to change the felt sense. The emotional baggage has to leave in order for the mindset to change. Yes, you got it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that was game changer, you know? And I think a lot of people are still sitting with their therapist without the training that you have, without the somatic tracking awareness and the Buddhist background that you have. And they're walking out of the of, of therapy rooms sometimes, like activated and inflamed. And I'm saying like, your therapist needs to give you the tools to be with the feelings. And, and some people say to me, my, ther my therapist tells me, be with your feelings. But I'm asking her, how do I do it? And it always leads to like another sort of question. It's, it's quite simple, you know? It's quite simple. Well, and it's nice to have the tool of guided meditation. I know how to guide a meditation because I am a mindfulness meditation teacher. And I, I became one so that I could help my patients, my clients. That's right. That's and, right. And so sometimes what they need is for me to just guide them. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way they're going to get out of their minds. And so often that's what we need, yeah. you know, it's like we need each other. I think in this hyper-independent culture of, 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 of the language on cover of magazines of self-made, like nothing is self-made, like get out of here. Nothing exists from its own side. We only exist in context with the other, period. It's like, what are you saying? You know, like it's so mind-blowing that these big lies are so bluntly used in the media to 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 just dig a deeper hole of mental illness for us to like reinforce a really negative spiral for us that we think we have to do it alone but we don't no. we can't we don't we can't we cannot it takes a village for a reason you know so anyone who tells you that you have to do it alone they're lying and they're not well i have to advocate for that i have to say it out loud exactly it, we are interrelational, right? Everything happens in the relational field. That's where the healing is. That's where the heart, the harm is too, right? A lot of interpersonal violence, but then you can heal it through the right mm -hmm. relationships. Yeah. Yes. And it's the illusion of separateness that causes us to suffer the most, isn't it? And when we remember we're interdependent, it stops. I mean, that's the beauty of these universal principles that are part of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. So simple, not easy, difficult, no. but worth it. Yeah. Very hard, very hard, but also like really, really beautiful. Um, you know, through this journey of losing my my mom, it, you know, I've had the Rinpoche at the monastery that I was at when we started to receive the news, had everybody pray for my mom and and do all these pujas. And I study Vajrayana Mahayana, so it's a little different from the tradition that you're part of, but you know. 
uh, same, same, but yeah. different. Um, Lovely. You know, and 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 they were saying your mom is in the in the pure lands, and for a, sort of a the Christian uh, language will be like heaven. You know, and I'm it's I'm happy to hear that. That's great. And also, it's really hard to, you know, um, you know, like believe any doctrine, you yes. know, regardless of how profound it is through the mourning grief process. It's really disorienting. Yeah. And also, I have moments of clarity where I feel my mom closer to me than ever before. It's not always. It's maybe like a couple minutes every day. Um, I'm mostly just mad and confused these days, but doing this work, talking to people like you, educating my students, you know, like it's really helping me to come alive. And most of all service, you know, just like cooking food for the unhoused community, actually cooking the food here in my apartment with my boyfriend. Um, you know, tomorrow we're going on a 5k run, um, to end youth uh, homelessness in LA. So it just every week, like at least a couple times a week, I was already doing this before any of this happened, but now I'm realizing that the quickest way for me to remember the purpose of, of staying alive is to just help alleviate the suffering others. And, and I know that that's what my mom would want for me. So Anyways, that's where I'm at. Okay, I have to ask you just a, just a couple more, just like one more thing. Actually, there's two more things. But first, why did you get into this field? Like, why did you decide to help people? Like, why did you decide to become super wise and super smart and super compassionate and so loving and with this beautiful smile and all these amazing qualities? Like, what happened to you? Or what 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 kind of like was the the, the catalyst for that for you? Well, I come from a long line of neurotic people. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, wasp culture. There, it's all about comparing mind and it's all about feeling inadequate and kind of, you know, elbowing everybody out, out and mm -hmm. I wasn't happy. And I saw that the people around me weren't happy. They were super successful, a lot of ambition, a lot of money, but not happiness. Mm -hmm. And so... First and foremost, it was to reduce my neuroticism. Helping others meant I wasn't focused on myself. Mm -hmm. But then I started doing it, especially with veterans, and I loved it. First, I worked with youth. I was a wilderness instructor. And I, I sort of cringe at how I was, you know, like 22 to 26. But I loved it. And I, I think there is a high of helping. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you talk about channeling your addiction into helping mm -hmm. you didn't say that exact thing but mm -hmm. perhaps that's what i'm doing mm -hmm. is i have meaning and purpose and then life feels less meaningless it's hard mm -hmm. these days not to be pretty depressed especially after the pandemic and the political mm -hmm. situation with all the climate anxiety and i find i really it really grounds me to be talking about what we're talking about because then i get to hear it and yeah. seeing relief in my clients' faces and knowing that their relationship is healing is healing for me. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I definitely have attachment trauma like most of us, mm-hmm. right? Because my parents are baby boomers and their parents were World War II and their parents were World War One, and it was a survival society. But my parents are in the first identity society and they talk about how they are the me generation. And as their mm-hmm. oldest, I didn't feel very validated. And they, I had a lot of strong emotions from the very beginning and they mm-hmm. didn't like it. It was very threatening to them. And so bless their hearts. They're wonderful people. And it was really invalidating. And I, I, I grew up feeling like I wasn't okay. I was too much mm-hmm. and that I was the problem. And I channeled that into eating disorder and, you know, unhealthy relationships. I was very attracted to sociopaths. Mm-hmm. And, but through that, I've grown so much and I'm a much better therapist because of my pain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's part of post-traumatic growth too, is being able to look back and go, oh, I would never wish on my worst enemy somebody going in the military. Mm-hmm. However, I am who I am because of it. You know? That's right. So. That's right. Beautiful. Okay. So last question. And I feel like I could talk to you forever. Thanks, we need guys. to have a, a you know, I, I want to hopefully meet you in person at some point. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. Love it. Question. Have you ever had a mystical experience that you're okay talking about? Yeah, I don't know. I've heard you ask other people this, and so I was thinking about it, but I didn't want it to be contrived. Mm-hmm. What I, I would say is that I've had such incredible experiences in my life with nature. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I call them mystical, but I call them really lucky. Mm-hmm. So we went whale watching, for example, on a research vessel, and two humpbacks played with us for two hours. Wow. That doesn't happen. It felt like they were our pets, or maybe that we were theirs. <laughs> I think um, you were theirs. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and then I was just in Mexico, which was really cool. And we went on a little snorkel tour, but three humpbacks found us. And one of them was a baby. And he followed our boat, or he or she. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I just, I'm reminded over and over again about how beautiful life is. So that might be mystical, but I also feel like I fall in love with people constantly. I fall in love with the person at, you know, at the grocery store and that relational magic alchemy is something I benefit from constantly. Mm -hmm. I have that too. I'll bet you do. I have that too. Yeah. I like that. And, you know, maybe, maybe it's, I think we're seeking sometimes these kind of like extraordinary experiences, you know, for when I speak about the mystical, when I ask this question, but I think it comes down to that. I love, I love your examples. I think it's really seeing, you know, the beauty and the, the, the relational dance with the whales and seeing the beauty and falling in love with everyone everywhere. Uh, Cause to fall in love with someone a stranger, every you know, uh, the random person that we encounter with, it does take um, it does take a, a very pure perception, you know, and a pure perception comes from a mystical heart. So there it is, right? I'll there it, it is. <laughs> wow, what a joy! Thank you for being on the show. Oh, Truly, like so grateful for your work and your your words and your presence and your just everything you exude. Thank you. Right back at you. Thank you, my dear. Thank you very much. I'm Sada Simone, and you've been listening to The Spiritually Sassy Show. If you haven't yet, 
Go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and reveal this podcast. And join me next Sunday for another spiritually sassy conversation. Thank you so much for listening, and I love you. Thank you.